0: This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Paul Oldham, CFO of Advanced Energy, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader podcast.
0: This is episode 489.
1: On a quarterly basis, we'll do a quarterly business review, and the FP&A partner will help each of their functions prepare for that present to the executive team how things are going for each, not only on the function, but also on each major program or project. If we're 50% underspend, but we've only enrolled a quarter of the patients than we thought we enrolled, then we're really over budget, even though we spend less, right? We've spent less, but made a lot less progress. We're actually over budget. So that type of thought partnership throughout on a day-to-day basis and more formally really helps across the board.
0: Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ted Miles, CFO of AMAG Pharmaceuticals. With nearly half a billion dollars in annual revenues, AMAG left its biotech startup days behind long ago. But with a variety of offerings at all different stages of development and commercialization, CFO Ted Miles is seeking to achieve greater visibility into the spending required to advance its patient enrollment efforts. We speak to Ted about that and much, much more after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does, your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping midsize organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Ted Miles, CFO of AMAG Pharmaceuticals, a company focused on serving patients with unmet medical needs across a range of therapeutic areas, including women's health. Ted, welcome. Thank you, Jack. As always, we like to begin by asking our guests to look back, Ted, and if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing a few of the experiences you feel that uh, prepared you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you?
1: Sure. So I guess thinking way back, I'd really look to kind of my breakthrough first CFO position. Um, I think typically breaking into the C-suite, getting that first C-level position is always the hardest one to get. Um, I was back in late 2005, early 2006. I was really, I felt I was ready to make the move and it took me a while. I went up went in for a couple of positions and continued to get beat out by a sitting CFO. Of course, it's a important position to hire and understandably a board and a CEO is always going to look for someone who's proven in the seat. Uh, fortunately, I landed the first job, first CFO job in early 2006. Um, it was a relationship I had previously. It was a very small publicly traded life science company that was sort of relaunching itself to commercialize its technology and I spent three years there. We had a fair amount of success generating a lot of interest from the Wall Street community and also got the technology commercialized and out in the field and um, serving life science researchers. At a certain point in time, I decided it was time to move on, and um, that really set me up for what's been, you know, as of now, a 13-year run as a sitting CFO. Um, The second real milestone experience that I think shaped my leadership today was my experience at Okada Therapeutics. Um, And Okada, which ultimately became Okada when I joined, it was a different company name. It was really a turnaround situation. And when I jumped in, I knew it was a turnaround. I knew it had a couple of challenges that were left from the legacy management team. Uh, It exceeded my expectations in terms of how deep the The legal and compliance and the financial issues were, it really took about a year and a half. And throughout all of that, I was really focused on as long as I was comfortable with who I was working with and enjoyed the people I worked with and also the underlying science that the company was founded on. As long as I could stay comfortable and inspired by those two elements, um, I was able to sort of fight through. And we used to refer to cleaning up the muck because we knew there was a diamond in there somewhere. Um, Happy to say, We worked through everything. It was a really important technology. It was focused on um, treating age-related macular degeneration, which is an eye disease is the number one cause of blindness in people over 50. Also, there's a childhood manifestation of age-related macular degeneration, and it could impact someone as young as 10 years old. And a a 10-year-old, the thought of a 10-year-old starting a five- to seven-year journey into blindness with no cure really inspired me and my team to work hard and turn that company around. We ultimately turned it around. We got it capitalized. We were able to ring in the NASDAQ bell, and we were in deep discussions with a large Japanese pharma company called Estellus, and they decided they wanted to buy the company. So the decision was ultimately focused on what's best for patient care, what's best what's best for the employees, and obviously for shareholders, and we decided to sell the company to Estellus. So I'd say that was milestone number two, and that led me to my current post as the CFO of AMAG, and AMAG's a really unique pharmaceutical company. We're very focused on innovative therapies to patients in need, and it's really been a terrific ride. It's been really fun and fascinating, really being a driving force in the transformation of the company. A few years ago, we were really a specialty pharma company focused a high, high emphasis on commercial products, not so much on innovation, and a few years ago we began to make a shift, a real strategic evolution, to really backward integrate and build up a clinical development capability and position ourselves so that we could start to buy clinical development, really unproven, unapproved assets, move them through the FDA, and then launch them.
0: Yeah, forgive me for jumping in because I want to I want to uh, talk to you a little bit more about your, your beginnings and then circle back with you and, and uh, find out more about… About Amag, sure. Um, one of the, one of the things that struck me uh, as you explained uh, sort of your entry into the the CFO office, uh, it's not uncommon uh, to come up through the controllership uh, function uh, for a finance leader or CFO, uh, and it's not uncommon also for them to have a tour of duty in uh, the investment banking world. But but you have both. You know, I, I, and I was, uh, I was just thinking you have like a uh, – you're wearing a, uh, the suspenders and the belt. Uh, you, you, uh, you really uh, played both uh, spaces well uh, as you entered the CFO office, I suppose. Uh, would that be a fair assessment, or do you see the world differently?
1: No, it's a good point, and it's something I, I went into accounting early in my career really as a, a way to pay the bills and get my first job out of college. And something I looked at as maintaining option value. I wanted to continue to learn something and figure out, you well know, learn and enhance my market value while figuring out what I really wanted to do. And that's actually where I discovered the business of science, this biotechnology sector and this business. It was the early 90s and companies like Genzyme were really starting to grow up and Vertex and some of these other companies in the Boston community. And. I was fortunate to get exposed to that environment early, and then made the decision to join a company and become its controller after its IPO. Ultimately, I went off to business school with an eye toward becoming a CFO. And right out of business school, I, uh, as you said, some come up through the accounting channel, some come up through capital markets and investment banking channel. I wanted to be as well-rounded a CFO as possible, so. After business school, I went and worked on Wall Street in the healthcare investment banking group of a boutique investment bank and was really fortunate to learn how to evaluate companies, how investment bankers operate, how investment banks operate, Um, and it it gave me a really good understanding of the capital markets that serves me well today.
0: Turn back the clock. Uh, Was there a possibility, could you have landed just as easily in uh, perhaps uh, IT Software or another industry? Uh, or was it somehow you thought of yourself uh, coming out of school as, as biotech?
1: It's a good question. You have to wind back the clock a little farther. In, in high school, I'd say it, science was the only class that really got me to sit still and pay attention. I was just always fascinated by biology and anatomy, physiology. The other courses didn't really capture my attention as much. Um, it wasn't until college that I became a bit more of a student and was focused on business because I love the collaborative aspect and the team-oriented aspect of business. And then the two forces sort of came together when I was spending time at in, in my accounting job as an auditor. And I was performing audit services and learning the businesses of these various biotech companies. So really from that moment on, I never looked back. Biotech and pharmaceutical is really, that's the industry for me. I think it's the most important for me industry I could possibly work in, I can go home and tell my kids at the end of the day that I at least helped move the ball forward on on an important therapy that would help improve healthcare.
0: You You spent some time describing for us how uh, the environment of the one company when you first arrived, there were some challenges, but what was important to you was you believed in the science and you believed in the people who you were going to be working with. You were confident. Do I have that piece of the story correct? Is that what you shared with us?
1: Yeah, there were really – there were two elements when I joined the company Um, was a penny stock. It was fundamentally broken. It had the prior management team had really just taken too many shortcuts, and it was across the landscape on shortcuts in the way they built the culture internally, uh, compliance and accounting shortcuts. They had done some unfortunate transactions to really clutter up the balance sheet with some – what we call toxic toxic instruments on the balance sheet. And the reason I joined was because I met the CSO, the chief scientific officer, got sort of inspired by his vision of what he was trying to do with these stem cells. And importantly, I met with a few members, the new members of the board, there were a couple of key business leaders in the Boston biotech community, and a very key uh, scientific leader who joined the board, and also the chairman of the Scientific Advisory Board, So I was able to put the pieces together, that the science was real and that the new guards, so to speak, which I was going to become a part of, was very committed to doing things right. It's a
0: great story because I think many finance leaders, as they evaluate opportunities, every so often there might be one with similar challenges. And let's face it. These are tough decisions. Do I join now or not? But it sounds like, among other things perhaps – you had the access to very senior people, and you could ask them hard questions. Uh, if you were going to make this type of commitment yourself in your career, you you had that access, and I think that's what gave you confidence. Am I summing that up correctly?
1: That's fair, and I, I think the key is asking the right questions um, early and often and continuing to ask questions. I think that's a key part of the CFO's role is to ask a lot of questions. and. Sometimes they're not easy questions. Uh, there were times at this company, Okada, where we were evaluating and I was asking the board, is the best potential, the, be- the best thing to do? Should we shut the company down? Are these challenges insurmountable? And you know, once you ask that question and everyone gets past it, then all challenges are small compared to the alternative. So I think being comfortable asking very direct questions, and continuing to ask until you're satisfied with the answer is really critical for any, any business situation, but particularly in the CFO seat.
0: So with that experience behind you, and, and forgive me, I interrupted before as you began to fill us in a little bit about AMAG Pharmaceuticals, but you know this opportunity comes forward, and what is the opportunity – that AMAG offers you now at this stage of your career, perhaps that Octa never could. Finally, AMAG puts some new milestones uh, on on the horizon for you. Is that uh, would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Okada was was a fifty-person company with no revenues, a couple of interesting assets, and real a real platform technology with a couple of programs in in FDA development. And once we got acquired by Estellus, as is typical, the CEO, CFO are typically excused and happily excused and we move on and do other things. And at that time, as you know, Boston is full of really interesting biotech companies that are in clinical development. And I did see something different in AMAG. Uh, The profile, particularly at the time, was about a $500 million a year company, very profitable. From a financial standpoint, it had a lot of interesting components to it, not only revenue and profit, but also a fair amount of cash on hand so we could do additional business development transactions. And it also had this debt and different flavors of debt. So from a financial officer's standpoint, it would get me exposure to different types of investors and different markets and different instruments. Um, What really got me excited really was the people and the mission and the idea to drive change. We were starting to talk about a transformation of the business, and as you probably picked up, I'm pretty focused on becoming a change agent, and and I like transformative opportunities. And uh, Amag has been that and more.
0: So what? Uh, so so your arrival. Let's 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 find out if you was it that you were going to reorganize finance in some way, were there different skill sets that you uh, perhaps added to your team, how are you going to become a change agent?
1: The change I was referring to was really the change in the business strategy to, to backward integrate and build the development capability and start to invest in earlier stage assets. But within the finance team itself, it was at the time the company had grown pretty exponentially through a couple of acquisitions. And I'd say the finance and accounting team or the, the function was lagging a bit in its development. It was was being augmented by a number of part-time consultants and contractors rather than institutionalized knowledge and people processes and tools. So I definitely wanted to make sure that that was changed. I wanted to invest in the area. And the CEO and the board, to their credit, saw that and said they needed a full-time CFO to lead that. So I came in and evaluated and got to know the people, and uh, for the most part, terrific people. It was just a a little bit up behind the power curve, and the basic closings and the blocking and tackling was sort of a brute force effort. And so we had to really start to invest, replace consultants and contractors with full-time employees so we could institutionalize knowledge. We implemented a new accounting system, which really sort of transformed the way we work. So we had an improvement in a a staffing up of people. We put in a world-class accounting system so that helped with the tool. And between the two of those, we also developed processes. And now we're at the point where, you know, pretty quickly we got to the point and we continue to be there where the basic blocking tackling of the closing happens in all of the employees on the team from the staff accountant, you know, from from myself all the way to the staff accountant, are able to sort of rise out of the the day-to-day and the closing tactics and really be analytical and question and, and thoughtful about how we can enable the business and empower the business. And so I'm really pleased to see that. I'll give you an example. Uh, our year-end close at the end of 2018, as you, you probably noticed with a lot of your interview candidates in this space, um, the JP Morgan Conference in early January is sort of the kickoff for the year for the industry. At AMAG, we pre-announce our prior year earnings at the JP Morgan Conference. So we have, my accounting team has about six days six total calendar days to get us a pretty good tight range of what the closing numbers are. And I'm really proud of the team. They were able to generate that those estimates, equip me and the investor relations team with messaging for investors. We pre-announced, pre-release kind of preliminary earnings. And then you fast forward six weeks later, we get through a complete audit, and the final numbers were pretty much exactly the numbers that we pre-announced six weeks earlier. So we've got a really great team. We're able to invest heavily in cross-training so that people are always enriching their career and learning new skills. Also gives us a lot of redundancies in case someone moves on to a different opportunity. We can just backfill very quickly and not miss a beat.
0: Now, you've been there uh, three years now, um, and I know this company's grown uh, through acquisition over time. Is that right? How, how many How many have been on your watch?
1: Uh so when I started, there were there were two commercial products in the portfolio: a company, a product called Makina, and a product called Farahim. We also had a subsidiary that we had a service called CBR. And since then, we've brought in four additional assets. One's commercial. One is late development. We're waiting for the FDA to give us an answer in June. We hope to be launching that product in the back half of this year, and then two others two other product candidates are in development Um, and along the way as what typically happens as you're transforming a company there's growth and sometimes there's growth by shrinking first and we actually sold the CBR division in the middle of 2018 and that's what actually allowed us to really finalize the the overhaul of the balance sheet and we reduced about $500 million of debt on the day we sold that business.
0: As you look at the challenges you face and, and uh, how you are measuring this business. We always like to ask, what are the metrics you're paying close attention to? They might seem obvious, but we're, we're looking for you to share something you might be paying attention to that uh, in the past didn't mean as much. What are you paying attention to here? What metrics?
1: So there's a lot in that question. We're, we're, pretty, da- we're pretty data-driven. And there's really – there's two components, as I mentioned. So on the commercial products, it's the typical things, of course, right? So there's leading indicators on scripts and ex-factory shipments. Uh, pricing in the pharmaceutical industry is very complicated. So the gross price to the net price is about a you – know, usually about a 50% difference between those two. But there's a lot of work that happens in between to figure out what net price ultimately will be for your commercial products. And that changes on a quarterly basis based on dynamics in the market um on the development side your quote unquote product while you're developing a product is data and we're working really hard our clinical development teams working really hard we've got an asset in development for severe preeclampsia and we're working really hard to enroll that trial as quickly as possible because once we're able to get 200 women through that trial a few months later we'll be able to reveal or and look at the data and see Did this experimental therapy have a statistically and a clinically significant benefit over the placebo? And that's going to be pivotal to hopefully getting the product approved and getting to all women who may be suffering from severe preeclampsia. So, a key metric on that front is data. So it's it's a mix between commercial metrics of scripts and volume and price, and then the clinical metrics of Number of patients progressing through the trial and time to clinical data.
0: Is uh, the enrolling of women into these trials, the enrolling of patients into trials, is there anything that's changing with that process so you can accelerate it or move it forward? Has any, or is this one of those things that it's always going to require? Uh, a certain approach that just cannot be uh, accelerated?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, and kudos to the FDA for acknowledging that patients are waiting. So the, the, the FDA is always taking sort of a risk-based approach to clinical development. And, of course, number one is do no harm. And if the compound that a company, a given company is trying to test has been proven to, to be safe, that's one factor. If there's no addressable, if there's no current therapy and a very severe patient outcome for having no therapy, that's another factor. And then sometimes in a small indication where the investment required is significant, but you have to get to this small population and send companies to make these investments, there's another factor. And so the the trial that I just referenced, this is the AMAG-423 candidate for severe preeclampsia, has a lot of those factors. It's known to be a very safe compound uh, because the similar compound has been used in patients for a different indication unrelated to pregnancy. You've got a number of patients that present with this, this disease or this condition every year. The outcome of not having an approved therapy is very severe for either the mother or the baby or both. And so they've been very accommodating in taking a risk-based approach, and so we're hopeful that if the data are compelling, this single trial of 200 patients would be enough to have the FDA – give the FDA enough confidence to approve the therapy and get it to patients. So in some cases, it's a very different equation, and it could be a 2,000-patient study or more, and it could take many, many years and cost a lot more. But – the FDA really takes a risk-based approach and tries to figure out what's best for patients. Now, we want to uh,
0: touch on FPNA with you. Do, do you have a – is it an FPNA function or is it a – how do you look at it as a team?
1: We do. We do have an FPNA function. We've got a, a head of FPNA and and he has three full-time people who report into him, and they are critical. They're really critical in, on a couple of fronts, partnering with the business. To enable better decisions and create a lot of information, and really be a very critical thought partner as these different components of the business are working to uh, achieve their objectives. And also the steward function that's part of my role is bringing back information about how are, how is it that we're allocating shareholder capital, and are we doing so efficient efficiently, or are we seeing you know waste or better way opportunity for better ways to do things. So. The FB&A function is a really important component of my organization, and really important if you think about, for example, the clinical development team. I win, and AMAG shareholders win, and, and patients win if that clinical development team is empowered to make the best decisions possible. And there's a lot of brilliant people in that group. Almost none of them have any sort of financial analytical background. So to get a really strong financial analytical person partnered up with a really strong clinical development person, you can get a really nice marriage there and much better decision-making for everybody. So we view FP&A as really, really critical to the uh, really the finance organization and AMAG overall.
0: That marriage that you described uh, and those three FP&A executives, I have to believe that they're out there with the clinical professionals you were just describing, we're finding that there's a cadence to this collaboration. If you could maybe just illustrate for us, I mean, is this something that happens once a quarter? Is this something that happens, they cross paths once a quarter? Or is it does it happen monthly? Is there something you can shed light on for us, how that relationship is, uh, how they connect in the, in the operation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they, you know, at Amag, the FP&A partners actually sit in their areas with their people. So the three, the head of FP&A sits in the finance area, physically. His three people are co-located in their respective functions. So, for example, the, the fp and executive that I mentioned, who works with clinical development, she sits in the clinical development group. So she should be having lunches and working and sitting through meetings with her clinical development, quote, unquote, customers or partners such that she is involved in the day-to-day. And so you've got someone, you've got 10 people in a room thinking through a clinical development plan or getting an update on a program. Ten of them are thinking about the clinical development components of that meeting, and there's one there with a very strong financial conscience thinking about, okay, we didn't get as many sites up as we thought, but a lot more patients per site. What are the budget implications of that and so they're sitting in on the meetings and helping to provide the thought partnership on a day-to-day basis and then on a more formal setting what happens is on a quarterly basis we'll do a quarterly business review and the fpna partner will help each of their functions prepare for that and present to the executive team how things are going for each not only on the function but also on each major program or project if if we're 50% underspend, but we've only enrolled a quarter of the patients than we thought we enrolled, and we're really over budget, even though we spent less, right? We spent less but made a lot less progress. We're actually over budget. So that type of thought partnership throughout on a day-to-day basis and more formally really helps across the board.
0: Now, has that sort of approach or uh, let's call it architecture been in place uh, before you arrived, or is that something you and the FPNA a leader helped? craft and, you know, in terms of how those people are spending their time and and the types of questions and the types of relationship they have. Was that something that clearly has evolved over time?
1: It's definitely evolved over time. In fact, we didn't even have, I think, our clinical development team, our overall R&D team was probably a handful of people when I started, and now there's over 40 professionals in the R&D group. So. There was clearly not an R and D partner there. There just wasn't the spend, and there wasn't the uh, level of importance back then, um, as there is now. So, uh, I'm trying to think. All of our FP&A people that we have on staff now have joined within the last two years.
0: So this might seem rather rather obvious to you, but it's a great uh, discussion that I'd like to have more of. So I appreciate you uh, answering. Uh, these questions and uh, and 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 inside the the r&d the seasoned r&d professionals have probably collaborated in the past if they've had a career in r&d with finance people uh, but do they perceive that your finance team is playing a more engaged role how would they how how do you hope that they are perceiving finance
1: hopefully as partners and if 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 FP&A and finance is sort of a necessary evil in their mind, then we're not doing our job right. They should be coming to us, and happily, that's what they're doing. They're coming to our part, to their partner, their FP&A partner, and coming to these quarterly business reviews willing and, and really excited to bring forth their progress and to sort of flip the coin over from clinical progress to the financial side of that clinical progress with an eye toward how do we do more with less? How do we move things across? How do we move things better? The clinical development leadership also understands that resources are finite. In any company, they're finite. We're all, as an executive team, stewards of shareholder capital. So the the more efficiently that we can deploy that shareholder capital for the greater return, the better for all of us. And as everyone's very focused on Kind of comes back to the patient. If we're able to deliver, get these patients through the trial, if the data are good, we can get this drug approved. Share price goes up. We can get more capital and go and develop more drugs and and uh, improve lives. So it really is a a virtuous circle, and that's sort of the tone that we have here at Amag, um, patient care, and we're all shareholders of the same company and stewards of shareholder capital. So. Hopefully, you know, what I see is they come to us often and really partner with our team often and on a regular basis.
0: When we come back, CFO Ted Miles shares a finance strategic moment with us after this. You want smart? year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middlemarket. Uh, Given your lines of sight into the organization over time and uh, during the course of your career, uh, I'm sure you've had many finance uh, strategic moments, but we're looking for one that you can illustrate for us. And again, this is when you saw something. Given your unique lines of sight, you were able to detect a risk, an opportunity, whatever it may have been. When I ask for a finance strategic moment, what comes to mind for you?
1: So really, it's the transformation or, or my my role in the transformation of the company. It was late 2016 when we were negotiating pretty heavily for two assets at the same time with separate partners. And I started to look, and I, I knew one, one of the assets was FDA approved but not yet launched. So when you're launching an asset or launching a clinical product or, sorry, a, a pharmaceutical product, it is going to be consuming capital for quite a while before it actually starts to become profitable. The other asset we were pursuing was in clinical development, so that would be consuming capital for a long time. That's the one that we're, we are looking forward to an FDA answer in June on that product, so we'll be launching that hopefully at the end of this year. But as we started to negotiate for these, I started to think about how they're going to fit in the portfolio, and that's sort of where the light went off and for me, Our balance sheet doesn't match this. All of our products to date had been profitable. And so, you know, on their own, they've been contributing capital rather than consuming it. So that's where I really started to analyze the balance sheet, not just for 16, but for 17, 18, 19, and think about what do we need to do to align the balance sheet to the business strategy. And that's where I kicked off a series of transactions. First one in the second quarter of 2017, where we refinanced, we issued a new convertible debt instrument Um, that was due five years out from the time we launched it. And we upsized that and used excess proceeds to pay off some near-term debt. And then that really set us up to divest of the CBR business, which we started in mid to late 17 and consummated in the middle of 18. And that's where we were able to use the proceeds from the sale of that business to pay off, we had these high yield bonds, that were outstanding, we paid those off. So we went from a company with about $1.2 billion of debt that was fairly near to intermediate term maturity. And some of it was actually by covenant restricting the type of types of investments we could make to really clearing the deck clearing the decks completely. Now we have a $320 million dollar convert due in mid-2022. So we have a few years before we have to really pay that back or refinance it. And that's enabled us not only to invest in the products that I mentioned that we that we brought into the portfolio in the first quarter of 2017, but we've subsequently brought two more products in, the AMAG 423 product that I mentioned for severe preeclampsia. And then in January, we consummated a transaction of a company called Perisphere Pharmaceuticals with another development asset that we think fits very nicely with our hematology franchise, and if we're right about the thesis on that asset, we think could be a very, very large product for the company um, in a few years, probably in 2022, 2023. So really the finance strategic moment is really thinking about the balance sheet, making sure the balance sheet not only aligns with the business strategy, but it should support the business strategy.
0: Well, we're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and you know, mentor future finance leaders. So what is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? After all you've been through, there's got to be something on the horizon. What is it that's exciting you now?
1: I mean, I, I just think it's so great being part of this this ecosystem in the greater Boston area. I feel like over the last ten years, the, the Greater Boston area has just kind of had a boom in biotech and biopharma, where it's just the place to be. And I was at a conference last week, and just you see old friends and people that you've crossed paths with over the time, and it's just very energizing to see what they're up to these days. And tomorrow, you know, today's tiny little pre-IPO biotech company could be tomorrow's Vertex, and it's just really inspiring. And, and the biotech industry is is really predicated at most of these companies that are trying out something brand new, these early, early-stage biotechs, are going to fail. But some won't, and the ones that don't fail are the ones that deliver real impact to patients, and that, that's very exciting to me.
0: I, you mentioned Boston. I always kind of enjoy asking uh, whether uh, you've ever had a recruiter try to move you across the country for one opportunity or another and whether uh, your reluctance, because it's it seen, I think you've you've built your career largely in Boston. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, have you ever been tempted to leave the area?
1: Yeah, I, I, I th- those calls come all the time, uh, and Boston's home. Just uh, yeah, it's not going to happen. I don't, never say never, but really unlikely because the community is so strong here. Um, not to mention my kids are well-situated in their schools and and we're in a great town and everything. But um, really, this is the place to be.
0: Now, we always like to ask uh, about your first time that you stepped into the CFO role and whether you arrived there and there was a piece of information that you think back now, if only someone had told me this a little earlier, if only someone – could have whispered in my ear way back when as I, I took on that leadership position for the first time. That would have been useful to know ahead of time. What what might that have been, if there was a piece of information you wish you had as you entered the CFO office for the first time?
1: Well, that's a great question. It's actually advice I got during my second CFO job, but the earlier the better. So I did get this advice pretty early on, and it's definitely stuck with me. It was, it, I was working, I was a CFO of a Venture-backed company, uh, and I was talking to one of the venture capitalists who was a board member and the lead VC on the, at the company, and they had just let the CEO go, and there was a new CEO coming in, and we were having a good talk about the whole dynamic, and and he just explained to me that as a venture investor, they understand that these companies are going to have challenges and it's going to be bumpy and there'll be some failures along the way, but what they always value is good, candid, transparency. And that really struck with me because what he said, all of his companies in his portfolio are gonna have bumps and are kind of always on the edge of failure or success. It's the ones the CEOs and the management teams they stick with are the ones who really just give them the truth and work through it together. And that has uh, stuck with me for sure during the Okada experience and continues to, as I work to uh, progress transform, and, and grow AMAG. Investor Relations, they're ultimately the shareholders here and they own the company. And I think Investor Relations is really a, a relationship business at the end of the day.
0: Great, great, great insight. Do, do you have a personal habit or routine that you believe has in some way contributed to your professional success?
1: Uh, I'm a avid cyclist. And so I get I try to get a lot of exercise, at least, you know, five to ten hours a week. Uh, and while that might sound like it's not working time, it really is working time, because usually when you're not trying to figure something out is when you have those eureka moments. Um, making exercise a habit, exercise and wellness a habit, is uh, it makes me a better executive. certainly makes me a better husband and father, but, yeah, it makes me a better executive as well.
0: Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders?
1: I think just a a good book for aspiring leaders. I I read a book a while back called The Secret to Peak Productivity. Um, I found it pretty helpful in terms of organizing yourself. It takes sort of a Maslow's approach to organization.
0: Okay, we're up to our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader?
1: So the Big priorities, I mean, my priorities are really AMAG's priorities, so we want to really focus on completing this transformation of the business. We've got a couple of really interesting milestones over the next, I'll extend, it's a little more than 12 months. Let's call it 15 to 18 months is the delivery of data for that severe preeclampsia asset. So a big priority for me and the company is get that trial enrolled. also deliver, continue to deliver quarterly results. We're driving a really strong commercial business here and continue to drive those commercial results um, and fully integrate. We, As I mentioned, we just acquired a company called Parasphere Pharmaceuticals back in January. We closed the transaction. We're pretty much complete with the with the integration, but we need to get really get that clinical program, the phase two program, complete and get the information out to our investors so that they can really understand and what we saw and get them to buy into our hypothesis that drove that event action. Ted Miles,
0: thank you for joining us on Seattle Thoughts.